Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There is no off-season. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on October 22nd, 2017 from a Sully Baseball studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. It just dawned on me that in a couple of days, it'll be October 24th. And that used to be the great special day because it's where I could look at when I did the daily podcast and say, here's another year where I did it every single day. Here's another year where I did it every single day. And, you know, it's a little a little melancholy that, you know, the daily is over. Who knows? Maybe it'll be resurrected and maybe I'm going to do something else. I'll just... I'm I'm planning to do something else, and it's going to be, it's it's probably not going to be a daily show, but it's probably going to be more frequent than a weekly thing. So bear with me on that. I'm going to be working on that for the off season. Uh, as some of you who've been listening to this podcast may know, I'm trying to get some other stuff in my life sorted out as well. But that's neither here nor there. So, uh, the 24th, which is Tuesday, is going to be Game 1 of the World Series, and will be the, I guess this will be the fifth anniversary of doing the Sully Base, a version of the Sully Baseball podcast that you can find on this stream. So I'm not going to let that just come and go leisurely. Uh, but there's obviously a lot to talk about. And last night's game, which was the last two games uh, between the Astros and Yankees, if you casually look at them, I mean, people in the future, who don't weren't experiencing the game, will see that oh well the Yankees tied the series, but then the Astros came back and outscored them eleven to one in the final two games. The only run they got was an eighth inning home run by Aaron Judge in Game Six. They were totally shut out in Game Seven, and that it was a game that was well you know the Astros took control. But watching the games were very tense. I mean, the game six was a very tense game. The seven to one final uh, doesn't really reflect what kind of game that was. Remember, it was no score going to the bottom of the fifth, and it was three to one going into the eighth. That there was no, there was nothing to point to to say, okay, this is going to be an easy win. When Judge homered in the eighth, and you knew the Astros bullpen was a little shaky, yeah. Yeah, you. There, there was nothing to show that the Astros were going to explode for four runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. Because up until that point, save for three runs in the fifth, they had been shut out completely in game five. And they hadn't scored, they had scored three runs since taking a four-nothing lead in game four. And it looked like, okay, there was that one inning where they scored three runs. But the bats were still kind of dead, save for that one, you know, that one little explosion. And then they just let loose. And the game yesterday was, well, I mean, let's just face it. I mean, it was once the Astros scored the three runs in the bottom of the fifth inning, it was, you just got the sense that it was just a march to the ending. Now, it was a very tense game going into the fifth because it felt like the Astros had a much bigger lead. They had to lift... CC Sabathia, and if you if you just went back even a few years and say, okay, it's Game Seven, you have a former Cy Young Award winner on the mound, and he's let up one run in three and a third innings, yank him. 
I mean, that, that would just be unheard of. Uh, but, and Tommy Canley, who has been tremendous with the Yankees, had his probably his one bad outing with the Yankees, and it happened to be in the fifth inning. And that really just, after that, you could just see the Yankees were just flailing. And, you know, Aaron Judge yesterday went 0 for 4, uh, made a great catch, made, stole a home run, but went 0 for 4, and st- had a terrible strikeout in the eighth inning. And that was that. The The thing that was, to me, the most startling and to, and surprising in the entire series was Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton was terrible in his game, uh, I believe it was game three. And I think they had everyone, including J.R. Richard, ready to go for the Astros at this point. And when he threw a shutout inning in the first, I tweeted out, I said, lift them. That's all you can ask for. And the fact that he just got them on the heels, striking out five in five innings, letting up just two hits and one walk, and getting through the you know five shutout innings, and then that to me was just put the tone of the entire game, which was runs are going to be an absolute premium. And then the wonderful thing happened. Now, if anyone has been listening to this podcast for the last five years, knows that even though I have a fascination with the bullpen closer, I have a, well, it's not a love-hate relationship. It's an absolutely exasperation relationship. I don't know. Is that even remotely a sentence? With the save statistic. I think the save statistic tells us virtually nothing. I think the save statistic has become the, I've I've talked about the tyranny of the save, that managers and management have been managing to the save. We have to get the guy who gets the saves pitching in the ninth inning because that's what we do. That's what we're paying the money for. And you're almost managing based out of fear. Like, well, if we lose the game and I'm not using the guy who has 35, 40 saves in the ninth inning, then... I'm going to be asked, why didn't you use that guy? Of course, not taking into account that standing on the mound and getting a save is sometimes based upon who is physically there that you're, you're shoving up there in that role. We've seen guys get saves, some, you know, sometimes pitchers with ERAs in the fives or the sixes get 25, 26 saves because you just happen to throw them out there in the ninth inning. I think the save statistic is ridiculous. I think it tells us virtually nothing. It tells us virtually nothing about the quality of the reliever. It tells us nothing about the the uh, um, what kind of a situation it was. A lot of times you have the seventh or eighth inning is where the game is on the line. Oh, but we got to hold off our pitcher. We got to hold off our pitcher. We saw that with with Joe Madden not using Wade Davis. With a game on the line in Dodger Stadium, say, well, we he, we got to save him for the save. Really? We saw the season end for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2014. Season on the line, they put Michael Waka in to pitch, who had barely pitched all year. And they had their best relievers just, you know, playing tiddlywinks in the bullpen while Travis Ishikawa homers. A few years ago, Zach Britton was sitting playing solitaire in the bullpen while Ubaldo Jimenez led up the season-ending home run to Edward Encarnacion. 
in the postseason, if you lose a game and you do not use all the best available players at your disposal, by definition, you have failed as a manager. And so many times, the save has come into play. Well, everyone has their roles. Remember Matt Williams managing the Nationals a few years ago? And down the stretch in a critical game four, he wasn't using his best relievers. And was at, when asked about it, he said, like, well, he's our eighth inning guy. He's our ninth inning guy. Great. Your season's over. Congratulations. Thank God you lined them up. You've seen situations in the past where you use players in weird ways. Francona certainly did that with Keith Folk in the 2004 postseason. But the tyranny of the save, I think, is slowly becoming a thing of the past. And I think what Francona did last year by using Andrew Miller in his best available, you know, we'll bring him in the fourth, we'll bring him in the eighth, we'll bring him in when he's needed and not pitching, you know, he was their best reliever last year and he got one save in the entire postseason. We're starting to see teams move away from that, using their best relievers and using their most talented pitchers, not when it will get a save, but rather when it will bring about the best result for the team. Now, Lance McCullers Jr. pitched a tremendous game four for Houston, and the lineup of relievers, including Ken Giles, got smacked around and lost that critical game four, which almost torpedoed the season for the Houston Astros. And so here we are in a game seven. They got Everything they could ask for for Charlie Morton. If anyone, if you lined up 10,000 Astros fans, surveyed them, and say, if Charlie Morton gives you five shutout innings, would you take it? It would be 11,000 people saying yes. It would be so in, in tune with that that 1,000 people would run up just to vote. So they got everything they could ask for. Charlie Morton gave them five shutout innings. They had the entire bullpen ready. In comes McCullers, who dominated the Yankees in his one start. He thought, all right, maybe they'll give him an inning or two. But he was dealing. And you could see he was dealing. You could see the Yankees could not hit his curveball, no matter who it was. Lance McCullers came out of the bullpen and pitched four innings, let up one hit, one walk, and struck out six. He faced 14 batters and struck out nearly half of them. And I don't think he threw a fastball the entire time. And you could see that, oh, well, should they get it? Giles up? Should they get Davinsky? Because he's our eighth inning guy. He's our ninth inning guy. No, they let him finish it up. Because anyone else they would have brought out, the Yankees could have hit. But A.J. Hinch looked at the situation, and I guarantee you, he wasn't saying, okay, and then I'm going to just finish up with McCullers. But we could all see, wait a minute, they can't hit this guy. So why could, would we bring in a guy like Giles who they could hit? Or someone else who they say, okay, at least we don't have to face that guy anymore. No, they left him in. And the, I'll say it, the greatest moment in Astros history took place yesterday. Clinching that at home. Clinching the pennant at home in front of the home fans. And I'll get into a little why that's the greatest moment in Astros history. And the greatest moment in Astros history 
did not have the closer, Ken Giles, jumping up and down. Did not have Justin Verlander, the big new acquisition. They had Lance McCullers Jr. got the save. And do you know what? That's a save. When you throw four innings of shutout ball striking out six, that's you got to get something positive for that. So I'm glad he got a save for that. But do you know what? It was a remarkable outing. And the the mentality of, well, we got to bring our closer in, we got to bring our closer in, even sometimes bringing in the closer as a borderline ceremonial role, like bringing Kenley Jansen in a blowout game the other day, where, I mean, I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, he's he's had great pitches, had a great year, and you want to clinch the pennant, have Kenley pitch, you know, clinch the pennant for you. I have no problem with that. But that's always the mindset. We got to bring in the closer no matter what. And instead, they said, no, let's keep the guy out there who they can't hit. And it struck me as I watched that. And I tweeted out, why not have McCullers pitch the eighth? He pitched the eighth. I said, screw it, I haven't pitched the ninth. I didn't think, he, I didn't think in a thousand years he was going to come out and pitch the ninth, even though that seemed like the smart thing because I thought, well, they'll say we got three innings out of him. And they'll bring in Giles because he's our closer. And, we got that, that. and then when I saw him come out, it was like, yeah. I'm sure the Yankees even thought, oh, man, I'd so rather face Giles than McCullers. And A.J. Hinch saw that, knew that, saw they couldn't hit anything he was throwing at him, And they got the save, and the Astros are in the World Series. And it brings up a philosophical question that I can throw out there. And that is, how would you manage a game? How would you manage a bullpen? How would you manage a pitching staff if you removed the win statistic and the save statistic? Think about that for a second. How often do you see a pitcher being dragged out to a fifth inning where you're like, well, you want to make sure he can qualify for the win? How often do you see, no matter what, if if it's a three-run or fewer lead, you bring the closer out, no matter what the matchup is? Because you got to have a closer. You got to have a closer. That makes sense when you have a Rivera. That makes sense when you had Lee Smith in his prime. Or when you have a pitcher who is, you know, has that year where everything's dominating and dealing. You know, friend of the podcast, Sean Doolittle, got on a great role. So it made sense because he became a difference making reliever down the stretch. Uahara in 2013. Uh, Brad Lidge in 2008. But if you don't have someone like that, you have a Ken Giles who's a fine pitcher but not exactly a difference maker, then why would you automatically hand the ball to them? Why would you automatically give it to Santiago Casilla just because he happens to pile up some saves? He's not a difference maker. What if you manage based upon, oh, why don't we bring in the pitcher who's the best for this particular moment? against these particular matchups. Or leave a pitcher in when you're like, hey, wait a minute, they can't hit this guy. I'm going to have him finish out the game. Before the save statistic became a, became a big moneymaker, became a big way for people who are relievers to cash in, you saw, but when it, when it was first established in... 1969 is an official save. Being a reliever wasn't, you weren't a big budget player yet. They weren't the big superstar, big money relievers really until, you know, Fingers and Gossage 
and and Souter cashed in later on. Well, it just was a stat. Oh, they got the save. You saw many teams have multiple pitchers get saves. The New York Mets in 1973 saw saves from Tug McGraw, George Stone, and Ray Sadecki. The Reds in 72 had Clay Carroll, Jack Billingham, and Tom Hall. You know, you saw team, you know, the, the Reds had you know, multiple pitchers who got multiple saves. The A's mainly had Raleigh Fingers, but you saw Daryl Nose got saves, Vita Blue got saves, Catfish Hunter even got a save. You know, you saw you know, the, the Cardinals when they went to the World Series in 85. Ken Daly, Todd Worrell, Jeff Lottie. You know, when Jay Howell got suspended in 88, four pitchers got saved for the World Champion Dodgers in 88. But when it became a very big, you know, when it was clear that you have to have the lockdown pitcher, then it just became you hand the ball to the guy, hand the ball to the guy. And I think it, and because they became such high-priced players, there was that pressure to always use the closer. Now imagine, you don't manage that way. You only bring in the pitcher who at that particular moment is the best available pitcher. The pitcher at that moment is dealing, throwing flames, throwing curveballs they can't hit. And you don't Think of the save. Like you remove the save from the equation. You remove the win from the equation. How would you manage differently? How would you man how would you evaluate a pitcher differently if you remove the win-loss record and you remove the save statistic? If instead you look at the, the body work, and I'm not even going into deep sabermetric analysis. What if you even just use traditional stats? This guy has pitched this many innings, struck out this many batters, walked this few batters, has this low ERA, has this low batting average and OPS against. And you look at all the other ways to judge a pitcher instead of looking at the win level. What kind of year did he have? You know, he was a 20-game winner. Well, what did that tell you? Rick Helling won 20 games one year with an ERA over four. Nolan Ryan went... You know, was a 16-game loser and led the league in strikeouts and earned run average. What if we evaluated pitchers differently and in-game make those decisions not based upon, oh, will they get the win, will they get the save, but what will get us the win? And we're starting to see that, certainly in the postseason. I'd like to see that through a whole season. And if you take those three stats, win, loss, save, out of the equation. Would you be managing to win the game better than simply managing to the stats and managing to the pressure of, well, this guy is such a big price pitcher, they have to get the save. What if you pay a reliever big money and say, hey, look it, you may not, you're, you're paid the big money. We need you. You're valuable. You may not be pitching the ninth, but don't worry about it. The checks will clear and you're going to help us win. And sometimes the best spot for you will be the ninth. Sometimes it will be the sixth. Or sometimes you'll be a starting pitcher like Lance McCullers and say, do you know what? We could use you for the rest of the game. And there you go. Now, the four-inning save by McCullers clinched the pennant. Why am I calling that the greatest moment in Houston Astros history? Well, part of it is this was a team that was in the dumps just a few years ago. 
and they did the spectacular rebuilding job and found themselves in the World Series. So the rise from laughing stock of baseball to 100 was it 103 win or 102 win pennant winner is tremendous. They did it through smart trades, they did it through a vital farm system. There you go. Um, in the wake of the horrible hurricane and all the destruction that's happened in the city of Houston, obviously, emotionally, that plays a big part in it too. And also, this is the second pennant in the history of the Houston Astros. Think about the first pennant. First pennant they won was 2005. The only thing anyone remembers, the only image that is indelible of the 2005 postseason regarding the Houston Astros is the home run that Albert Pujols hit off of Brad Lidge. They were on the verge of clinching the first ever pennant in the history of the Houston Astros in front of a frenzied crowd. And Brad Lidge on the mound lets up that three-run homer to Albert Pujols, which people still talk about. And it was a crushing blow to the Astros. But it actually wasn't. It actually wasn't a crushing blow because the Astros won the next game. That was game five. They were about to win the series four games to one against the Cardinals team that I thought was going to win the pennant. I thought they looked tremendous. And the Astros beat them in six games. There was no seventh game that year. It didn't go seven games. It went six. And the pennant was clinched in St. Louis, the final game of that version of Bush Stadium. No one remembers that. There's no great moment of celebration. It was a quiet St. Louis crowd filing out like, oh boy, this is over. And then you could hear the asses going, yeah, woo, yeah. BGO hugging Jose Vizcaino, yeah, woo, ah. And then they went up and got swept by the White Sox. And they got swept. They actually played well in the World Series. Three of the last four games of the World Series were really, really tight against Chicago. But no one remembers that. Their greatest accomplishment was winning the 2005 pennant, and nobody remembers it. They even take that moment and remember a brief moment of failure. The one hiccup in that series where they beat a superior Cardinal team and should have been in five games instead of six games, but all anyone remembers is the home run by Pujols. So because of that, you see the Astros winning the pennant at home, going to the World Series at home, is the greatest moment in the team's history. And symbolically... Going from the laughing stock of baseball to beating the Red Sox and the Yankees to get to the pennant. There's something, if I went back and told you when they were losing 110, 112 games and saying, hey, there's going to be a point this decade where the Astros will beat the Red Sox and then the Yankees to win the pennant, you would say, wait a minute, I thought the Astros are in the National League. And I'll say, wait, I don't, they're, they're, they, they switched, so don't worry about it. But you would think that would be crazy. And maybe you'd be right. But that's why this is the greatest moment in Houston Astros history. Now, they're going to face the Los Angeles Dodgers. And this is the first time 
that two teams that have won 100 games each have faced in a postseason series since the 1977 American League Championship Series between the Yankees and the Royals. That's a long time. Back then, there was only one Star Wars movie. It was called Star Wars. Now, we, we have one released every hour on the hour. And the only time, the last time we had a World Series between two 100-win teams was 1970 between Baltimore and Cincinnati. So this is the first time in my lifetime and only the second time since divisional play that two 100 teams are facing off in the World Series. And man, that must sting for the Cleveland Indians right now. But here we are, and I think one of the great things about this particular matchup, at least for me, now I'm in L.A., I live in L.A. County, um, and I'm going to say something which will discuss some of my many, many Giant fan friends, and the Giants are my favorite National League team. That being said, I'm rooting for the Dodgers. I'd like to see the Dodgers win the World Series, uh, partly because of Dave Roberts, partly because I live here, and it would be fun to be here when they win a World Series. Uh, And there are a bunch of players on the Dodgers that I really, really like. And I also think that, you know, I think it would be good for baseball to see a superstar team like this win. I really do. That being said, I have no ill will, despite the fact that they beat the Red Sox and pushed the Red Sox out of the postseason, I have no ill will against the Houston Astros. Obviously, the people of Houston have gone through a lot this year, and there are a lot of stars on Houston who have never won. Which brings me to something that I find very cool. I would be fine with either team winning this World Series. I'd love it to go seven games and have it be a classic. I'm pulling for the Dodgers, but I, I, I want to see a great series. And think about going down the line here. Let's, just look at Houston. You have Altuve, who was remarkable again last night, and is despite having those couple of bad games in New York, is putting together his October reel in case he wants to have a Hall of Fame career, which looks like he's on the first half of a really great Hall of Fame career. If he wins a ring, and probably the MVP this year, he gets two of the hardest things on the resume off the table right away. And you've got a bunch of other great young players on there, like you know uh, Correa, and, and, and you have some other wonderful you know players like uh, um, Dallas Keuchel, who all, you know, You'd be oh, great to see good, solid young players like that win. You also have a bunch of veterans. Now, I'm not the biggest Brian McCann fan in the world. I'm not going to lie about that. But he's been playing a while. He played in the 05 playoffs for the Braves, who lost to the uh, Astros. You have players like Josh Reddick, who's been around for a while. You have players like Francisco Liriano, who's had a really weird career where in some years he looks like a dominating Cy Young contender, threw a no-hitter along the way. Some years it looks like his career was over, and he's been a survivor. And here he is, for the first time in his career, playing in the World Series. You have Carlos Beltran, who 
arguably is having a Hall of Fame career. You can make a compelling case that he has a Hall of Fame career, has had a wonderful career in terms of October baseball, but only for the second time in his wonderful career is he playing in the World Series. And this would be his, you know, really his last, in many ways would probably be his last shot to earn a World Series championship. Take that off of there. And then you have Verlander, who's creating a great, great narrative for his Hall of Fame career that's already included a Cy Young Award, probably should have included more than one, already included an MVP, already included some dominating postseason performances. The only blemish on his resume was the fact he came up short in the 06 World Series and the 2012 World Series for the Detroit Tigers. And then he shows up with Houston when they were in a bit of a funk, has been damn near perfect, save for the Benatendi home run in a game he wound up winning anyway out of relief, and is the ALCS most valuable player, pitching them into the World Series with that great complete game in Game 2 and the spectacular performance in Game 6. He has a Hall of Fame resume that only lacks a world championship. Not that he needs that, but what that would mean. And one of the things I like is when you see veterans who have been through the ringer. I love seeing young players get their rings early. I do like that. Because then they can build upon that. But I love it when veterans get one too. And I just rattle off Beltran, McCann, Liriano, Verlander, Reddick. These guys have been around the block and not and never have won. Never have won the big prize. And I think that's cool. And then you look over to LA. The one thing Clayton Kershaw hasn't had is the world championship. The one thing that separates him from the Dodger lore of Koufax and Drysdale, and, and even some of the ones who aren't Hall of Famers but are beloved aces, like Newcomb, like Hershiser, like Valenzuela. The one thing that separates Kershaw from them is all of them not only won World Series, but had World Series glory of their own. That's the one thing that Kershaw, who is a cinch to go to the Hall of Fame, an absolute cinch, but also, that's the one monkey on his back. The one thing that would separates him from any... You know, it's the one thing that anyone who is a, a Bumgarner fan has to hang over Kershaw. It's the difference. Winning that title at this point in his career is the difference between being John Elway and being Dan Marino. Not that it makes anyone less of a player, but that's the one thing. And the fact that he had had some very high-profile failures, like the one he had in Wrigley Field last year, like two that he had against St. Louis a few years ago, this would wipe all of that out. And then you look, I mean, you have the Corey Seager, whether or not he plays or not, he's on this team and, and would, would win the the Cody Bellingers of the world, the... Um, Justin Turner's of the world, the Yasiel Puig's of the world, the Kenley Jansen's of the world. 
all these players who are good, solid, young players and putting down a foundation. You have the U Darvishes of the world who's been a solid all-star for a bunch of years and he's never played in a World Series. You have Andre Ethier who was in the playoffs when Grady Little was the freaking manager of the Dodgers and has been one of those Dodger mainstays for over a decade, has never won a World Series, put a ring on his finger. You have the likes of uh, Rich Hill, who career who was pitching for the Cubs in the playoffs in, in 07, and it looks like his career was over, and then he rehabilitates and creates a brand new career. And the likes of Curtis Granderson, who by all accounts is one of the really good quality guys in baseball, has played in the World Series for two different... This will be now his third different franchise that he's played the World Series, has never won. This is the type of player you want to see be a champion. You liked, I like to see superstars be crowned so they never have to worry about that again. There's a bunch of stars that are on the Cubs right now who are very young but never have to worry about it. Never have to worry about it. You know, you look around, you see some of the players who are on the Giants who won relatively early in their career, like Posey and Bumgarner and Lincecum and Sandoval and Matt Cain, a lot of those other players, and get to the point where they're like, hey, it's never a bugaboo on their back anymore. So to see a Dodger team that's filled with young players... Like I was talking about Rancho Cucamonga the other day, young players are going to be there for a while, and some old-timey all-stars who have paid the price and been there. I mean, Andre Ethier has been in the postseason for the Dodgers, managed by Grady Little, Joe Torre, Don Mattingly, and Dave Roberts. That's quite a stretch. And so you look at this squad, and he's like, man, there are so many players that it would be great to see them win. No matter who wins, there are a ton of veterans and young players who this would be the crowning moment, and for two franchises, what this would mean. For the Dodgers to finally win a championship for the first time in basically three, in basically three decades, basically a generation. A generation will say, here's our title. Enough of Gibson. Enough of Hershiser, enough of La Sorda, enough of Valenzuela. You know, I want to see a championship where the starting first baseman wasn't Franklin Stubbs. And now they would have that. Or for Houston to say, we got a title in anything. The only titles Houston has in any of the major professional sports. I'm sorry, I'm sure there's... Other sports I'm not including, and forgive me, but it's the, you know, the the Hakeem Olajuwon, which everyone puts a giant asterisk on because Jordan wasn't there. So this would be the greatest moment in Houston sports history if the Astros win. I have no hesitation saying that. And you have what would be the greatest moment in over a generation for Dodger fans and the crowning of a franchise. Think about what the Astros and the Dodgers were in 2011 and 2012. Astros were losing hundreds of games and looking like a disgrace, while the Dodgers were being run into the ground by a disastrous McCourt management. And here we are, five years later, and they are two 100-win teams facing off in what should be a terrific World Series. 
and I can't get more excited. Hey, before I go, I want to bring something up. I was rooting hard for Washington, partly because friend of the podcast, Sean Doolittle, was on the, sh- on the team, and I wanted to see him clinch. Uh, I also like a lot of the players on that team. I think it would have been historic to see Washington win a city that hasn't seen a World Series since 1933, hasn't had a World Championship since 1924, and that was two franchises ago. Excuse me, it did mean to cough. I'm not even going to edit that out. But I am a fan of Dusty Baker. I wanted to see him win. I wanted to see Dusty Baker have his greatest moment as a manager. And Dusty has managed the Nationals the last two years, first place finishes uh, in 2016, 2017. And in both instances, they lost game five of the division series by one run at home to LA and to Chicago. And then he got fired. Now, I know the drawbacks that people have on Dusty Baker. I know that he's too old school for the Sabermetrics crowd. And I know, witnessing firsthand, that he drives the fan bases crazy the way that he handles pitching staffs and lineups and things like that. I will say this, however. I think he sometimes gets shortchanged in his reputation. Dusty Baker has managed for 22 years. 22 years he has been a manager. From age 44 as a young manager with the Giants when they won 103 games to this last year as a 68-year-old manager winning 97 games with Washington. Think about how different baseball was in 1993. This was before the strike. The Giants were playing in Candlestick. Will Clark was the first baseman, for God's sakes. That's how long ago that was. Oh, you can say he had Barry. He had Barry. He was lucky he got there when Barry Bonds got there. Okay. His two best pitchers were John Burkett and Billy Swift. Did I miss when John Burkett and Billy Swift turned into Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin? He had Rod Beck as his closer, who was not exactly a lights-out closer before he arrived. He went around, yes, he had some good players, but he also developed good players. He saw a team, it wasn't just Barry. Yes, Barry had a remarkable year that year. Barry had a remarkable year a lot of years where they didn't win 103 games and take arguably the best of all the Atlanta Braves teams, the best of all of the Bobby Cox-era teams, down to the final day of the season. And then no one will ever be able to explain to me why the Braves were in the West. So it's one of those most remarkable things where that should have been the greatest NLCS matchup in, in history is the Giants and the Braves. All right, fine. Then you take the 90, 97 Giants postseason team. They were not exactly stacked with Cy Young Award winners and Hall of Famers, save for Bonds. It wasn't just Barry. Barry was on a bunch of teams that didn't play particularly well. 
Team won 97 games in 2000, went to the World Series in 2002. How many 90-win seasons does Dusty Baker have to have before we give him credit? Yeah, he probably overused Kerry Wood and um, Mark Pryor. He got the Cubs to within a game of the World Series in 2003. Should he have had a reliever warmed up? Yeah. Did he push Wood too far or Pryor too far in that game six? Yeah, probably. Probably. Were the Cubs any good before he showed up? Not really. How'd they turn out after he, lo- after he left? They weren't that good. He showed up to Cincinnati, a team that had been irrelevant for a generation. Brought them to the playoffs in 2010. Won the division and came within one swing of getting to the National League Championship Series in 2012. And got to the wild card game in 2013. It's fired from there. Goes to Washington. After a year of internal strife under Matt Williams that was insane. Comes in. They win back-to-back divisions. Now, you can say his in-game management leaves a lot to be desired. Okay. I could say that about how Joe Madden managed this world, this uh, postseason with the Cubs. I could say that about Joe Madden last year. If Jason Kipnis's foul ball didn't hook right, if it stayed fair... All anyone would have talked about with Joe Madden was how he overused Aroldis Chapman to the point he was exhausted at the end, and he took out uh, Hendricks too early in Game 7. And he mismanaged the hell out of the Cubs in this year's postseason. You know, no clue what to do with Davis and everything like that. Joe Torrey was pulled... Yankee fans would be pulling their hair out out of how he used his bullpen, how he used some of his players. And his mismanagement, you could argue, cost him in 2003 by pitching Jeff Weaver with a critical game on the line in the World Series. Joe Torre was horrible in the 2004 playoffs against the Red Sox. Mismanaged that incredibly. And... He did some terrible managing in his final term with the Yankees in 2007, especially how he handled the Midge game. You can point to any manager. Buck Showalter, what a genius he is. Single-handedly lost the wild card game to the Toronto Blue Jays. With his idiotic management of his bullpen. You point to lots of managers. Showalter doesn't have... Dusty Baker's uh, resume as a manager. So Dusty is now out there again. He got fired. As once again, the Washington Nationals management is putting the blame on the manager. They let Davey Johnson go after bringing him to the postseason. I, did he retire or not? That's, it's kind of up in the air. Matt Williams, they had to let him go based on his disastrous job at the end of 2015. And Matt Williams almost single-handedly managed the Nationals out of the postseason in 2014, a year where they they should have stampeded to the World Series. So, Dusty, he's out. 
If Jose Lobaton doesn't get picked off at first, does Dusty still have a job? If a little flare, a little fly ball lands instead of instead of being caught in that game five, if Max Scherzer isn't terrible, Max Scherzer was terrible that game five. If Max Scherzer was good, does Dusty still have a job? If Bryce Harper hits a home run, does he still have a job? Is Dusty going to get another job? If anyone else has the resume that I just rattled off, 22 years, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine trips to the postseason. In his 22 years, almost half of them went to the postseason. And that doesn't include a year where he won 103 games. That doesn't include a year where they lost a one-game playoff to the Cubs in 1998. So, is Dusty a bad manager? With all these job openings, shouldn't Dusty be someone front and center in line? I said, why not be the manager of the Red Sox? Looks like they're going for Alex Cora, who I'm fine with Alex Cora being the manager of the Red Sox because everyone's saying he's this great young mind and maybe that's what the Red Sox need. I, for one, want to see Dave Martinez be the manager of the Red Sox because I think Dave Martinez is the best managerial prospect out there, and I want to see if if he's going to have a great managerial career. I want to see him do that in a Red Sox uniform. But it looks like they're going with Cora, so I'll kind of shrug and say, okay, well, there you go. At least it's not Brad freaking Osmus. The Phillies need a manager. Why not Dusty Baker? Seriously. A team that's filled with good young players, look like they're about to mesh and meld together. Why wouldn't you bring in a guy with 22 years of experience managing? Oh, because he doesn't follow the Sabre metrics, he doesn't do this or that. If you notice, his teams win. His teams win a lot. They don't win the October games. Okay, there you go. If you're a Philadelphia fan, wouldn't you rather get to the point where you're in October? And are you telling me that if a ball dropped here or there, he suddenly would have been a genius? You know, the a couple of things could have gone wrong for the Cubs in the series against the Giants. If the Giants held on to that big lead they had in Game 4, that series goes to a Game 5 with Johnny Cueto pitching in Wrigley. I, I would pick the Giants in that game. If the Giants held that game, that game four lead, chances are the Cubs don't win the World Series, and we're not talking about Joe Madden like he's some genius. What happens in October? The bounce here, the bounce there. All those times that went against Jim Leland over the years with him in Pittsburgh, with him in Detroit. Did that ever did the fact that he won that one World Series in Florida make him smarter than Dusty Baker? I'm a Dusty fan because his teams win and he's entertaining. And he's smart. You can't be a dummy and consistently over different eras 
with different types of players and different superstars win no matter where you go. Wherever he went, the team won. They didn't win the big kahuna, but they won. And I believe you take a team that's on the rise, you put in a Dusty Baker, they're going to win 90-some-odd games. And maybe, just maybe, one year, a bounce here or a bounce there will go Dusty's way, and suddenly he'll become a genius. I think Dusty got a bum steer. I think he earned a chance to manage the team in 2018. Call me crazy, but managing the team and having to go 95 wins one year, 97 the next, the fact that they didn't win one game because Max Scherzer stunk, shouldn't be enough to say, well, then it's obviously Dusty's fault that they're not in the World Series. Maybe it's management. Maybe it's chance. Maybe it's something else. I hope Dusty becomes the manager of the Mets or of the Phillies. I think it would be a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind seeing him with the Red Sox, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Tigers signed Ron Gardenhire, and I have no problem with that. It's a little boring, but there you go. Dusty should be a major league manager. Do you know why? He's a damn good one. And I do believe that if he wins a World Series, he'll be in the Hall of Fame. Because no one would be able to look at that resume and be able to deny it. So wouldn't you want to be the one that puts him in? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Dusty, you deserve better. You've took four out of with how many? Four out of the 15 National League franchises. That's nearly a third of the National League franchises have gone to the postseason with you as their manager. Yeah, let's make it five. Sign them, Phillies. You'll be amazed, amazed how fast things will turn around. So we've got the World Series coming up. That should be fun. It's going to start on the anniversary of the Sully Baseball Podcast. So, so while I'm at it, go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Tipping my hat to Dusty Baker and celebrating a terrific World Series matchup. This has been Sully Baseball for the 22nd day of October 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, I'm begging you, call me Sully. <laughs>